Greetings and welcome to another edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. I'm your host, Dr. Devin McFadden, and today I'm privileged to be joined for part two on our podcast of Running Medicine by Chad Asplund, Georgia Southern University Student Health and Sports Medicine, Statesboro, Georgia, Burt Fields, Cone Health Family Medicine and Sports Medicine, Greensboro, North Carolina, and Colonel Rabo, Sports Medicine at Fort Benning, Georgia. I'd also like to thank the BJSM for their collaboration in the recording and production of this episode. When we wrapped up the previous episode, we had just finished reviewing the evidence on minimalist footwear. Okay, if the data doesn't seem to support universal adoption of minimalist footwear at this time, what about motion control shoes? Well, I started a bit of this discussion because of an article in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2016. Most articles in the past haven't shown an advantage to a particular type of shoe, but this one was a nice controlled study that showed an advantage, at least in those who pronated with a uh, motion control shoe. So while I've always encouraged my runners to choose their shoes based on comfort, it seems to me that maybe if we see really nice motion control shoes, this may be worth trying in some of our runners who pronate too much. Yeah, this is Rob. Um, I agree with Bert. It's really interesting. We used to think that uh, fitting the shoe to the shoe type, to the foot type was the right thing to do. Then all these military studies came out that replicated that shows that if you even match your foot type to the shoe, that it didn't do anything for injury. And so it was kind of debunked that the shoe needs to fit for the foot. But then this study came out, like you mentioned, Bert, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that randomized these folks to a standard shoe and a motion control shoes. And you're right, they, the ones who are pronating had better benefit and reduced injury from a motion control shoe. So I'm not sure what to think anymore now, but I think those who are severe pronators or those who are um, having some sort of pain, it doesn't hurt to start a motion control shoe in those pronators. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, um, you know, we wrote an article for the physician in sports medicine on how to match the shoe to the foot type, and that seemed to be the way to go at that time. But it seems, you know, now everything is shifting towards the core and the, and the hips as being more important than what goes on distally at the foot. I, I agree with you guys on, on comfort, and I don't know that shoe, shoe type really makes that big of a difference. I tend to like to recommend support or motion control shoes uh, to people who have uh, pain uh, medial pain with running that tend to overpronate, but uh, agree that comfort is probably the key and uh, making sure you have a strong core and strong hip girdle is probably more important than uh, what type of shoe that you pick. Great, thank you. Uh, so it seems like the data's mixed there. Uh, Rob, Bert, what, what would you say your general recommendations are to your runners regarding footwear? Yeah, so I think um, with all the data that's coming out with shoes and, and, and all the advances in, in research, I think the bottom line for me is um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it or don't try to fix it. I think barefoot or minimalist shoes may be potentially useful for those with like shin splints, um, chronic exertional compartment syndrome, 
patellofemoral pain syndrome that is recalcitrant to standard care. You've done all the therapy, you've done all the um, uh, reconditioning that you need to. But I think if you if you advise your patients to do this, then you have to be careful for the potential risk of metatarsal stress injuries, Achilles issues, and and potentially even plant and worsening your plantar fascia. Yeah, I would agree with Rob on all of that. And I would say that uh, while I use comfort as my primary sort of factor, I do watch my patients run. If I see that they're a forefoot striker, I would like to make sure that they have a shoe that has good cushioning in the forefoot. If, if I see that they're a heavy heel striker, I might be placing them in a little bit less flexible of a shoe at times. But I'm looking at something, one, that they're comfortable with. And I, I tell them not to make a major change. If they're used to a certain degree of drop in their shoe or a certain style to their shoe, there's no reason to make a radical change if they're not having problems. Great points, guys. I agree. I and mean, running is a, a relatively simple sport. You don't need a lot of technology in your shoes. Um, and I think really working to change your footwear or your, your gait pattern just because runner's world says you should um, may lead to more injuries. But I think if you have some specific injury pattern, um, then altering either your heel to toe drop or the type of shoe you're in may help. But I agree with Rob, if you're, if you're running and you're not injured and everything is going well, then whatever you're running in is probably appropriate. Um, and anytime you make drastic changes, you could set yourself up for um, new injury or further injury. Thank you, gentlemen. Those are some uh, great insights. Now that I think we've beaten the topic of footwear into the ground, what other modifiable risk factors or extrinsic factors do you counsel your runners on? I, I really try to look right away and uh, do they have strength deficits or any balance deficit? Because I think running is a very symmetrical activity. And if it looks asymmetrical to you, or if there's something you find on your evaluation of them to indicate that the core on one side is much weaker, you want to correct that. So a lot of times, I think one of the most important things I would emphasize to other doctors is that you gotta, you gotta see them run. You gotta see what their gait looks like to see if there's some gait issue that's significant. And then I'll drive in when you're talking about prevention to getting a careful injury history, see if they've been injured a lot. If they've been injured a lot, is it because they don't recover long enough or that they put in too many hard training days per week? So looking at those things will help you modify their uh, risk of injury, I feel. So this is Rob. So the big thing I, I try to counsel my runners and recreational runners is nutrition. Um, I really think there's a lot of runners out there who believe that since they run, they can really eat anything they want since they've burned all those calories. And I really think that's a fallacy. I hear more and more athletes, marathoners, elite athletes, triathletes, that later in the future, as their metabolism slows down, who are shocked they're diagnosed with some metabolic syndrome or prediabetes or even frank diabetes. I think many are lulled into thinking that they're distance runners, so that'll protect them from all the cardiovascular disease and that gives them health. Well, I'm seeing many of these distance runners and athletes with these hypertension, prediabetes, and metabolic syndrome. So bottom line, I think we need to be, be smart about training, but to be also smart about proper fueling and not just running as another excuse to continue to eat sugary foods, soda, and junk foods with tons of refined carbohydrates. 
I think the biggest issue that I see in people who get injured is is really doing the too much too soon. You know, while I appreciate people are excited and motivated to uh, to start exercising, um, sometimes, especially if they're not a regular runner, which is a, a significant weight-bearing exercise, too much too soon may lead to uh, to injuries. And I think you're always better off kind of underdoing it and being uh, healthy and uninjured than, than pushing it. And I think one of the things that uh, people don't really understand is recovery from uh, a previous training session is made up of a lot of different things. It's not just not running, but as Rob said, it has some nutrition, you know, sleep, um, de-stress, um, other things really factor into your recovering from a previous training session. And if you're overdoing it in life, um, as well as overdoing it in running, then that's a recipe for, uh, for injury and for, um, probably repeated injury if you don't get it right just to amplify what chad said this week i had a lady with a femoral neck stress fracture and she showed me her running log and she'd gradually increased just like you would expect but when you ask her history she's a fitness instructor so every day she was doing the three to four hours of weight bearing activity teaching classes and she wasn't factoring that in to her training log at all so her real weight bearing experience every day was a real overload on her system uh, just to amplify that a bit further, we have a number of running programs for significantly obese patients who are trying to lose weight, and those programs have been quite successful, but uh, I've seen a lot of stress fractures in those at very low mileage. So those people have to adjust just simply because their body habitus, they are not going to take the stress without getting into bone injury more quickly. Yeah, interesting you guys mentioned the stress fractures. We have a lot of stress injuries in the military, and femoral neck stress fractures is one of the big things that really has high morbidity issues with our trainees and our military population. And it's interesting on our end, we're looking at not just volume and load and all those things that you guys mentioned, but really looking at the nutrition, looking at the calcium, vitamin D levels, and and really trying to optimize nutrition and sleep, like both of you have mentioned. Now, when you're dealing with the injured runner, the increased availability of video gait analysis is proven to be a valuable tool in improving biomechanics and reducing injury rates in the short term. Do we have any longer-term data in these populations to suggest that we're not causing other injuries in our athletes while altering their gaits, though? Uh, you know, uh, this is one that uh, we discussed a bit before, too, and I, I just don't think we have any long-term data that includes many runners yet. It's interesting when you look at some of the studies, they really didn't have what I would call a real runner, someone who was doing enough mileage for me to consider them uh, a regular runner. Short-term benefits have really been shown for patellofemoral syndrome, uh, and uh, those were those look plausibly accurate in a few of the studies, but an overall meta-analysis suggested a small to large effect. But as I said, when you start looking at changing the gait, you've got to be careful, I think. And, and I think we're relying mostly on short-term data, although it's logical to me when I see someone, and I was a former track coach, so it's hard for me not to give advice, but when I see someone with, with terrible running form, I automatically say, I've got to change your gait a little bit. <laughs> Um, people are doing a lot of research looking at gait and, and, and footwear and foot strike and analysis. But again, it's really in its infancy. 
Um, Devin, I think you mentioned that to for injury prevention, we have really no data on if changing a gait will, will change, uh, prevent injury or what we call primary prevention. But like Bert said, there are some, some consistent uh, studies and case studies that show that it may help in those to prevent future injury and specifically those, like I mentioned, uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome, that's recalcitrant to standard therapy, and then potentially even um, chronic exertional compartment syndrome. I think it's interesting. It's, um, as Bert said, when, when you see someone who's running with what you would consider to be terrible form, you definitely have a you know, thought that we, we should really change this. But uh, through the years, I've known many, many runners who have what would look like terrible form who've uh, been very successful and very injury-free. So I think you have to be careful in, in changing someone's running form if they're not injured or don't have an injury history, um, I think would probably end up being, being a bad idea. I agree, though. Anytime that you change something small on one end, it's hard to tell what the long-term outcome would be, and we just don't have those studies yet. Um, and so I think we need more information. But I, I think if someone has been injured or had problems in the past, then considering changing their uh, running form or taking a look at their gait with whether it's video gait analysis, or I'm sure Bert does the old run out the back door and, and he watches them run a little bit. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's it's interesting point. I mean, um, as a clinician, I think to, to help clinicians, I agree with everybody. Hey, if it ain't, if it ain't broke, we try not to fix it, but if it is broke and we've tried everything, it doesn't hurt to look at the gate and it doesn't have to be anything fancy. And I, you know, uh, you can use your iPhone, the iPhone or other phones that has that high camera refresh rate where you can slow slow things down to actually see where the strike is, where the land is, if they're crossing over midline. You can see a lot of those things with just two views on a running on a treadmill, uh, a back view and a side view. And then you can really show the athlete and say, hey, you're having some pain here because potentially you're crossing over midline or you're... You're really landing on your heels and putting excess load on your your knees, and there's some really good apps out there that actually can you can actually draw lines and angles and show them. And sometimes just showing runners what they're doing um, can really make a difference. And and just simple cues to change that could potentially make a big difference. Uh, yeah, I would agree. In fact, even though I take them out my back door, as Chad said, I still will watch them sometimes use my iPhone to video them. And I'm, if I see a big crossover or if I see that one side, they constantly have turnout of one leg or other things, I'm trying to get them to make some changes with that. But where I see the real problems are when a fad comes along. I remember several years back when pose running became popular and people were trying to lean their body weight forward too much. And I started seeing a lot of issues that seemed related to people who were running just fine. And then they see a new fad come along and they try to change their running form or style to match what they've read, as you said, in some publication somewhere. So, so when it's not, Broken, don't fix it, as we've said before. But also, I wouldn't be a nihilist and say if I saw someone with a real obvious form problem, uh, I would still try to change that. I agree. 
One last question for you here, uh, and again, straying a little bit from the evidence. I know that each of you are avid runners yourselves. What tips and tricks do you use on race day to ensure you're able to perform your best and hopefully avoid injury? So overall, I mean, I think many runners minimize the importance of sleep for recovery, both on race day and afterwards. And of course, nutrition. I'm always trying to play around with the perfect fueling method pre-race, during race, and post-race. And so I'll, I'll play around with different types of food and food products, trying to stick with the whole non-processed food as much as possible. Yeah, I, I guess I was a pretty serious runner. In fact, for 50 straight years, I ran no less than 10 races and, you, and sometimes as many as 50 or more in a year. And when you raced all the time, you really learned some valuable lessons about physiology. And, and one of those that I, I learned from bad experience was that if I went out too fast and got off of the pace that I was trained for, I was going to pay for it in the end. So particularly if you're in any, any race that's longer than 800 meters, if you really drop your pace significantly, you've already taken something out of the bank and, and you're going to pay for it later in that race. Uh, we do work all the time with training too, is to learn to read those cues in your body that Am I comfortable right now? Am, am I pushing a little harder than I think I am? And that's particularly true. I, I always had difficulty with that in marathons, with starting too fast in a marathon, whereas if I could start at a, a slower pace and build into my normal pace, I always ran better. I think one of the problems that I always had is, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to trust your training and to realize that you've, you've done all the work that uh, there is to do and in, in trying to get a few last runs in probably is not going to help you right before a race, but may end up getting you injured or may, um, may alter your performance. Certainly pacing is really important and people who, uh, who race a lot or do interval training a lot uh, tend to have a better sense of what their pace is. And some of my best races or best memories of races are when I had the pace just right and was out actually able to run the second half a little bit faster than the first half and those are always good because you feel you feel better when you finish and you generally end up having a good day as opposed to when you go out too hard and then you it's just a it's just a struggle and you suffer for the remainder remainder of the race but I, the biggest problem that I've run into is um, trying to get in too much training and not really realizing that it's better to be a little undercooked and ready to go than it is to be overcooked and and, and done so um, but I will attest that Bert is a, uh, is a crazy lunatic runner. Um, he is, he has run really fast for a long period of time and, uh, um, definitely, uh, it's been very impressive to see him continue to be able to go. Well, Chad, Bert, Rob, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to speak with me today. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening. We hope you found this time valuable and that you'll join us soon for the next episode of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, the United States Army, or the United States government.